Yeah, and I think I think added in there with that point is that we find our meaning from finding problems and coming together to solve them. Um, and I think that that's what brings purpose and community in our lives. And in my experience, that's what makes remote nursing so satisfying. Hello, and welcome to a Nurse Outwear podcast. My name is Danielle Corza, and I have been a rural and remote nurse for most of my career. I created this podcast as an opportunity to explore and celebrate and perhaps spark some interest in rural and remote nursing. Each week, we will meet with some of the extraordinary nurses who live and work in rural and remote areas across Australia as they tell their story about all that is beautiful and unique to rural and remote nursing. So join with me as we explore the stories from a nurse out where. Hi everyone, welcome to the next episode of A Nurse Out Where. Uh, my next guest is a registered nurse and he's been nursing for 10 years and his passion for Indigenous health and comprehensive primary health care has led him to focus more on the remote area nursing. He's worked in NT, WA, North Queensland, as well as doing some international remote work in East Timor, Vietnam and Nepal. He says this has pushed him further to experience emergency first responder situations and he's now currently based in sunny Cairns. Welcome, Elliot Ventress. How are you, Elliot? Good. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us this afternoon. I'm really keen to, to hear and share your story. Thanks. Yeah, I look forward to it. <laughs> so as you know, the podcast is called A Nurse Out Where. So from your perspective, can you finish the sentence, I'm a nurse out where? Yep, my response is pretty straightforward with a geographical response, nothing too deep or philosophical just yet. <laughs> I am based in Cairns. It is by hands down my favourite part of Australia. Um, I feel an immense sense of privilege having travelled all over this country and knowing exactly where I want to base myself. So, yeah, this is the perfect spot for me. I love the... Um, cultural diversity that this place has to offer yeah and yep. um just the amazing natural beauty and awesome hobbies that I get to do here as well as the work the work is also great and I occasionally do uh, remote contracts still and um very much enjoy that yeah okay cool mm. very cool we were talking before we started the recording about how much we love living in the tropics and uh, it's a bit cool today. I see you've got a jumper on, and <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, it's my psychedelic pokeball jumper. <laughs> yeah, uh, this I've definitely acclimatized the tropics. Like I'm, yeah, I wear my UGG boots even on the dry season, so I'm I'm technically a local now. <laughs> Is that what determines a local when you have to wear your UGG boots in winter? Um, so I've heard and putting, <laughs> putting the heater on when I'm driving to my early shift. It's so what, where did your interest come from to go and work in rural and remote? Um, I think it began way back when I was a child. Um, I feel I have a lot of praise for my parents. I think they did a really great job raising myself and my brothers and um, they surrounded us from a young age with international students so my upbringing was in Sydney but 
literally from as far back as I can remember, my parents had international students staying with us or from all over the world, from you know, Japan, Germany, Switzerland, Brazil, and so on. So from a very young age, I was always quite curious about different cultures. Um, something significant happened in my life when I was 13 and I um, made a decision on my own accord to become a Christian. My family aren't religious at all. And that was quite a heartfelt, deep commitment that I made at that age based off a, a particular spiritual experience that I had. And I was quite uh, religious from the age of 13 to 26. And um, the reason I mentioned that is because it, it pushed me into this, a very positive community of people who fortunately in my situation, I was surrounded by a church community that was full of very socially conscious, uh, caring people. And I think they really helped guide me in a very positive direction. So yeah, for, prior to that, at the age of 13, I was interested in, my, my life goal was essentially becoming a porn star. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, sit in the bar. Oh yeah, yeah, I had high aspirations. <laughs> and then um, that kind of shifted a bit when I started going to church and <laughs> connecting with these other people. So I think, um, yeah, they essentially opened my eyes to the reality of, um, of, you know, the majority world. And for me, I think that I've been born into a situation of immense privilege and I want to contribute my, the education and skills that I've been able to muster up along the way. And um, yeah, one, one person in particular helped me kind of set up volunteer positions as a nurse, a teacher and a vet nurse through yeah. church. And that was through the social connections I made in that community. And that really helped me work out in my teenage years that I really wanted to be a nurse. And then, um, uh, yeah. And then during my university training, I actually went and volunteered in Nepal as a student nurse in my summer holiday. And then I got a scholarship to go to Vietnam oh, wow. after that. And then um, that really kind of opened my eyes up to Indigenous Australia, because the more I was learning about the developing world, the reading I was doing, the more I realized the statistics in Indigenous Australia weren't any better. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly right. But um, it was quite shocking to me, actually. It was very confronting because, you know, I grew up in Sydney. I didn't really have any concept or idea of Indigenous Australia. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. And here you are now. That's, that's incredible. Here I am now, both nurse and porn star. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let people Google you for themselves. <laughs> I'm joking. Joking about the part, last part. You can Google all you want. <laughs> they might find something who knows <laughs> <laughs> social media these days finds all sorts anyway we get off track um look we're you know we're all bound by confidentiality as part of our professional nursing registration but do you have a, a fond memory or a funny tale to tell about some of your time working in rural and remote yeah definitely uh, there's a couple of stories that spring to mind for me um the first one is um a bit more heartfelt and kind of funny as well 
this was on Saibai Island um, in the Torres Straits, which mm -hmm. is one of the northernmost Torres Strait Islands bordering Papua New Guinea. And something that I found particularly exciting about working there was the, the huge influx of people from New Guinea that would come across. And a lot of the work on call stuff that I was attending to was from the New Guinea nationals. Um, and it was, I, yeah, I'll never forget it. It was Christmas morning at 2 a.m. And I was happily, you know, sleeping. And I woke up to screams and I just thought, um, I thought I was having a dream. And I kind of jumped up out of my bed and I opened the curtains and I was standing there completely naked with the lights on. <laughs> and I looked out the window and there was a group of New Guinea people. It was literally 20 people standing outside my bedroom window. And they're all looking at me and I was looking at them and I'm like, <laughs> we're all just staring at each other. <laughs> and then after the initial shock, this like lady just screams. She's just like, I'm giving fucking birth. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh my God. This right. Is like, wow. What a, what a Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry yeah. Christmas. And you got a show. Oh man. Yeah, anyway, so that really woke me up. And I obviously, well, I got, I had time to get dressed, thankfully. And I rushed out and went to the clinic with this family. Got onto the phone to the, Obzangani registrar on um, Thursday Island, pretty quick smart. And just said, said to him, hey man, like I am not a midwife. <laughs> I really need your help. <laughs> and um, he, yeah, essentially spoke me through the whole thing. And um, during my time on Saibai, we had 15 laboring women and um, I delivered three of them, but the other laboring women, we were able to delay the birth enough to send them to Thursday Island for delivery. Yeah. yeah. So on this particular instance, I um, delivered the baby via teleconference, which was pretty wild. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Well done. But it, it was honestly amazing. Like, I know it sounds a bit cliche, but like, it is amazing like and then seeing that little baby come out and holding that child in my literally the palm of my hand yeah. like it was it, again it's a bit, a bit cliche but it honestly felt like time slowed down and just I, I was the first person that opened its eyes to and just having yeah. that moment was it really is quite magical wow and you never thought to go on to be a midwife <laughs> no i think male midwives in my mind are, i think of them as more mad husbands <laughs> i'm not i'm pretty mad but i'm not a husband so <laughs> i'm not really there yet maybe one day maybe one day I and it's a, quite, go yeah. on there you go i was going to say it's quite common for women to come over from png to yeah. the outer islands to have their babies in like on, on Australian, in Australian healthcare? Yeah. yeah. Are you asking a question? Or? Yeah, or both, yeah. Yeah, you're right, absolutely. And I think that it's pretty, yeah, it's really intense because um, a lot of these women don't have great access to healthcare. So they do wait to the last minute and they've literally, there's no 
documentation about their pregnancy or anything. And then they just arrive on Saibai hoping that someone is <laughs> there to deliver. And then they get yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, man, it's so intense. Like, thankfully, um, the ONG Reg was an absolute legend, and the team on Thursday Island were able to talk me through. Yeah. Um, and they have teleconference. Like, all of those facilities are there, thankfully. So, did you have video conference or just telephone? Um, the, we had video, and it would intermittently kind of cut out. So, yeah. we always had audio, though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, which well, is fortunate. I guess the, the other story I wanted to share yeah. briefly was um, uh, from One Arm Point in the Kimberley. And this is just a good example of just the funny random stuff you get called out to. Like I, I remember sitting at this, at One Arm Point is a beautiful location. It's near Cape Levique, just north of Broome. Okay. And there's a lot of resorts around that area. So I was sitting at a resort after work one day having um, a ginger beer, no alcohol, I was on call. And I was just sitting there looking out at this beautiful sunset. And I was there with a, my security guard. And I'd driven up there in the ambulance and we were just, you know, having a nice relaxing afternoon. And then I got a call. And this lady was coming in by boat ex to exactly the location that I was sitting at, which was quite convenient. And she said to me that she has a fish hook in her foot. And I was like, okay, fair enough. I can, I can respond to that. That's, that's fine. Yep. But, you know, and then I put the phone down and I just kind of casually said to my security guard, um, hey, man, there's it's not a big deal like this lady's coming with a fish hook in we can just literally walk down to the beach and we can take her back to the clinic and then he suddenly grabs me by the back of my shirt and pulls me up out of my chair and he starts screaming with his arm in the air spinning around and he's like all right let's go 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 and i'm like what what's going on he starts rushing me to the ambulance and there's this big crowd of people at the resort that are suddenly like oh wow what's going on there must be like some crazy thing happening yeah and i'm i'm like dude what are you doing like calm down and then he just he keeps ignoring me and like literally throws me into the ambulance and drives <laughs> me literally like one minute down the road to the beach and he drives onto the beach and he ends up getting bogged got bogged on the beach in the ambulance <laughs> And then I like I hop out and the sirens are bla blazing, and then this big crowd of people comes down to the beach and I'm just standing there like man we look like such wankers and then like this, <laughs> this boat comes up with this lady with a fish hook in it and that's it and everyone's just that standing and looking at us I'm just like oh that was so awesome. <laughs> oh how funny <laughs> I suppose you got a lot of volunteers to help tow you out that day oh absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> It's pretty funny. Yeah, that's hilarious. It's funny how different people react to, you know, that urgent, emergent mm -hmm. sort of care. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So you've worked in rural and remote for a long time. What's, what's some of the things that you might miss while you're working out in those rural and remote areas? Um, it honestly has varied. I think I've been to like 12, I've done 12 different remote placements and each one has been so incredibly different um some placements i've done with friends and other placements i've had a partner with me mm -hmm. um 
so the, I, honestly it, it is just friends and family like and yeah that's the main thing that's pretty challenging i feel like i'm quite a like gregarious person i get along with most people so i feel like i'm able to connect with a lot of different people so that that's generally fine but it is the familiarity you know like there's been some placements i've been on that i haven't seen in person someone of my skin color or age bracket for three months and I, yeah. that might not sound like such a big thing but it, in experience it's actually quite challenging like yeah that yeah that's yeah. probably the main thing it's it is the isolation but like i'm saying you still find ways around that so what might be some of the ways that you look after your own mental health in those you know more isolated areas how do you care for yourself? Yeah, I guess I was just going to add one other thing in there. And I mm -hmm. think that's fresh fruit and veg. I think I'll, I've listened to a few of your podcasts and I notice another, a lot of people say that as well. Like yep. some, some places have uh, fruit trees and that solves that problem because you just end up eating mangoes every day. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. And then other places um, you get like fresh seafood if you connect in with the locals well. Yeah, I've had a lot of good experiences with that as well. But um, in terms of coping, I think the way I think about it is I think about it as having a toolkit. Um, and that's not as if there's any one thing that works. If I just relied on calling friends and family, that would just and I didn't exercise, for example, it would just be a, a disaster, you know, so I, I always have to have a variety of things that I kind of dip into at different times yep um and it's always going to be that toolbox is different for everyone um but it, I think it's just about working it out as you go along and just tuning into what you need at, at different times um my perspective is it's better to give it a go than regret never trying yeah yeah and I think um yeah, it just depends on life stages as well. Like with my, like I've done a lot of remote gigs on my own, which I really loved doing for quite a long time. But it did get to a point where I, I was starting to desire having a partner there with me more often. And thankfully, um, the last couple of times I've been out there, I've been with my partner and she does online counselling for work. So it works really well. Yeah, okay. Um but having someone to sorry yeah, having someone to debrief with and talk to yes. and who knows what you're going through support you know just hanging out and like cooking meals together and all the rest of it but also um i know it's a bit cliche as well but exercise and meditation are definitely helpful for me and um yeah um yeah, there was one particular experience I wanted to share in relationship to um, the challenges that can arise in remote contexts. You know, yep. I think something something that as a nurse, when you're in a city, you're surrounded by your colleagues and your mates and you come across some challenging things in that context as well. However, the, the debriefing process for that can be, um, in my experience, a bit better um 
there was this particular experience which was unique to a remote context and also quite having those features of isolation which i, I just felt like yeah I, I feel that they're beneficial to share just um yeah yeah um yeah so essentially uh, this story was on cyber as well so um it was about one in the afternoon and this family brought in this 40 something year old man from png uh, on a stretcher and the story was that he had been vomiting blood for uh, several days and uh, he was unable to walk he was just so weak and tired and exhausted so he'd he'd been carried by a stretcher through the jungle for three days and then was put on a boat and brought across to Saibai Island um, and uh, yeah, by the time he arrived to me in the clinic, I uh, was checking his his bloods with the iStat machine, which is just a machine that helps us figure out the the different um, values on the person's blood tests immediately. Mm -hmm. and his hemoglobin, you know, being the the part of the blood that carries oxygen, was a three. Um, and wow. you know, normal is, as we know, uh, you know, more than a hundred. Essentially, it would be preferable. Yeah. Um, but in this guy's case, it was three. And I remember looking at it going, "That does not look right." I mean, like the guy was grey. He he wasn't. He was very pale for his skin color. But uh, <laughs> I was like, "There has to be a fault." So I checked yeah. it again, and it came up with four. And I was like, okay, this is pretty oh. bad. Like I was already onto the phone to the doctor by that stage chatting about this patient. And we checked it a third time and it was, it was a four. It was accurate. And I yeah. was like, I don't even know how that's humanly possible. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I mean, it, it, <laughs> it lined up with the story though, because this guy had been vomiting blood and he hadn't walked for three days. So he wasn't exerting himself at all. Um, and then I was having this uh, discussion with the doctor about flying him out to Thursday Island uh, because we don't keep any blood products in the clinic. Um, and essentially, it, it was too risky. Like it, it, it was very, very likely that this person was going to die in transit. And it's, it was honestly one of the most horrible, challenging experiences for me because I was essentially told that it, we can't afford to fly this man to Thursday Island because it, he comes under a humanitarian response mm -hmm. and the helicopter to fly out to where I was was going to cost, I think, $50,000 or something to retrieve this person. Um, so then I was left in this very challenging position of explaining to this new guinea family that we couldn't fly their husband brother partner out to a life-saving blood transfusion and I, I said to him that um, i essentially apologized well I've, I've just said to them i'm so sorry like we all we can do is assist you back to Papua New Guinea where you can um, hopefully get treatment yourselves 
and they were all just looking at me like you know tearing up and one of the girls was translating to help them understand better and they were all getting very distressed and this this young girl from new guinea showed me a photo of the hospital that they would be taking him back to and it consisted of a two-story house without any beds or um anything it was just yeah. an empty shell of a house and i was just like I just, it was honestly just so confronting. It was just the most gut-wrenching experience. And I just didn't really know what else to do. Um, I, anyway, I, I, eventually I just said to them, listen, I, I'm so sorry, but at this point, all I can do is um, make your you know, father, brother, husband, as comfortable as he possibly can um and that's my role now that's all i can offer i'm, I'm so sorry and so we have effectively palliated him and then um, provided him with comfort cares and he stood up to go for a walk to the toilet and collapsed and in this like a respiratory arrest because he yeah. had no oxygen no hemoglobin yeah and um died and um yeah, it was honestly so intense. Just like all of the women from his family group rushed into the clinic and we sectioned off that whole part of the clinic and allowed them to wail and grieve for the next three, four hours Yeah, um, while we attended to other patients. And I, occasionally I would, you know, pop in to see, you know, check on people, but it was just so intense. And then eventually after those three, four hours, um, the men came in and the men and I, it was a comp such a contrast, like the women wailed and then the men came in and the women left and we washed this man's body um, and then clothed him in traditional outfit and then carried his body on, onto the ambulance and, um, and then the clinic was closed at this point and we drove along the coast of the island to the wharf and there was a huge procession of people it would have been about 300 people who were walking along the coast of the island and it was like afternoon sun and i remember it was honestly one of the most bizarre experiences because in my experience with crowds of people whether you're a party or wherever there's always like different levels of energy and in this experience, I've never experienced it before since everyone just was this thick, deep cloud of sadness. And it was completely yep. quiet. There's no talking. And we all just walked for about half an hour along the coast. And it was the most beautiful afternoon. Like the water was completely still and silver and the sky was this beautiful silver as well. And eventually we got to the wharf and quietly put his body into the boat and his wife and close family members were in the boat with him and drove him and i remember just standing there on the coast looking at the man's body go back to new guinea and it was intellectually i know i'm going to die however in that moment it was it, it's the most bizarre experience it was like that thought and awareness dropped into my gut and i felt like the phrase i'm going to die mm. went into my body and it was like 
it was, it was it's so hard to describe but i in that moment i realized that yeah i'm going to die one day it's like it's such an intense um realization like intellectually i'm aware of that but on some other profound level it hit me and and to go through that experience in a in that isolated context it's pretty intense so for me like that evening it was just i, I just was stood in the shower just crying and yeah. like that was a very significant important release for me at that time in that specific encounter and the next day i i had to like chat to some of the locals about it because I, I just wanted to understand what how that even happened and the locals were saying to me that that particular man um from their perspective had received black magic um you know which further yeah. compounded my confusion however chatting to getting a bit more collateral from other people it sounded like what had happened was this man had been poisoned by someone right they perceived him to be um you know a morally bad person because he was peddling various substances in that part of the country and so someone went and poisoned him and that's how that situation unfolded but yeah it was really very intense and then yeah processing it was um yeah a lot of running <laughs> <laughs> so how how do you like how did you had, had you experienced death um, professionally before? Yeah, I've experienced death professionally several times. Yeah. 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 And then, so putting it into context, you would have been the one non-Indigenous person on the island, potentially. Yeah. So there was, um, there were, I, I would say there were, because it was Christmas, New Year, and I think there would have been honestly maybe six or seven of us that were European Australian yeah. and the rest were local Indigenous or, or New Guinea. So it makes you like you feel I imagine you'd feel like you're in a completely foreign land with you know yeah. a very little network to get that support so how how did you process it um, you know you said um, you spoke to try to understand the process but you know mm. obviously it's still effective or affecting you yeah yeah it was honest it was honestly one of the most challenging things i've encountered because um i, I absolutely debriefed with my colleagues however that only really got me to a point and then chatting to family and friends almost compounded my isolation because they just couldn't really comprehend what was happening and then i was running a lot like every day I was I was probably the honestly the most physically fit I've ever been in my life I was just it was so much everyone knew me in the community as the running guy <laughs> so I think I I'm proud of the way that I managed it like it taught me that I have good coping strategies and I think um when I do go through challenging times in life I default to just running heaps however um yeah i don't know it's just you just get through it i don't honestly don't know like it was a lot of broken sleep is there uh, anything that you like thinking reflecting back on it now is there anything that you 
uh, thought you'd do differently or that you wanted from maybe from your your managers or, or you know, is there something more that you needed to help with that? Um, honestly, the thing that would have been super helpful is just to have a friend or a partner there with me in that particular situation. And yeah. since that time, I have had similar experiences with death in communities. And I've had a friend or a partner with me in those times. And the, the pressure of that experience is, is hard. Yeah. yeah to be okay. able to share in person and just to grieve and just to, to move on. I think Saibai was particularly challenging. Like I, in hindsight, I was quite foolish to book three months there. And um, probably a, an added tip for later in the discussion is just the, to book like a month or six weeks. And then you can just kind of, um, you can get through a month or six weeks. But when you're looking down the barrel of three months, I found that quite challenging. Yeah. 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 You can always difficult. extend. <laughs> yeah, you can always extend. And I have, I, funnily enough, I actually worked in Port Keats and I started there for a month. And I, because I was there with my friend, it became like an amazing adventure. And I ended up extending for three months, which looks great on my resume because no one works in Port Keats for three months. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it's good. Yeah. How do you fill in your days off when you're out in these communities? Uh, I, for me, it's just about making my own fun. So something I love about going to these locations is I see them as like paradise locations and it's just about um, exploring and nature immersion and then just finding my own quiet spot to, to meditate. And then it honestly just depends on my mood. Like I've got some very funny memories of going running in uh, desert landscapes naked and if anyone caught me, they'd think I'm completely insane because I'm like literally just wearing sneakers, nothing else, chasing <laughs> like emus and cows and like all kinds of crazy animals. It's so much fun. <laughs> but like, uh, yeah, like aside from running naked in beautiful locations, it's also like connecting with locals and yeah. like just going on adventures. Yeah, I think like... Um, the first placement I did, I remember I'd go running every night mm -hmm. uh, down this dusty highway and I'd do that run naked because it was just pitch black. <laughs> there was no one around. I was just like, it was a beautiful starry night in the desert and it was just, it was honestly the best part of the day for me. I'd just do that every day religiously. Yeah, yeah. And, um, this car one day, just like these headlights suddenly appeared behind me and I just got them like this instant you know, jolt of adrenaline. And my instant gut reaction was just to spring like a gazelle. And I just jumped into the air and land I landed upside down in a bush. And I, my legs were like literally poking up out of this bush and this car just flew past me. And I, and I was in so much pain afterwards. It was like covered in thorns and everything. Yeah, yeah. So I was just like... I was just thinking to myself, I wonder what that car even saw, you know, like, they even, like, the imagine like, them driving the past that? and they just see a flash of white yeah, and then white two flesh. legs sticking out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so oh, that's cool. Oh, that's anyway. hilarious. 
but yeah, I've had some really amazing experiences. Like I've been spearfishing with locals on Saibai, which was pretty crazy, like out in the mangroves and stuff. I'm not sure if I'd ever do that again, but that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And then um, more recently I had um, eating like local wildlife and Tiwi and I was at a really fun, probably a particularly fun memory was playing footy in Papania with, in the desert. Mm -hmm. and um yeah that was really special because a lot of the men there's a lot of challenges with engaging young men coming to the clinic yeah and that particular community i was just there at the right time um with them playing footy regularly so i would just join them every afternoon after work and built a really good rapport with that community and we ended up having like men's clinics for the young men and got really great turnouts for that yeah, so, great. yeah it was good got some really um fun memories etched into my mind it's good and i think um a lot of people have said a similar sort of thing like you know immersing yourself in the community is what what really helps um mm. and it fills in your days off and your downtime and whatnot but um yeah i think um you know you do personally connect with the community mm. which then builds that rapport and that trust and then you can start to work professionally with the community yes you yeah, know definitely mm. yeah and that's that's definitely the most satisfying part of being out there because technically i mean most of what i'm doing is primary health care and for me that is actual primary health care yeah. i think that it is, it is tricky because a lot of the time that i spend in the clinic is effectively emergency nursing yeah. It's like, and you do all your recalls and chronic checks and all the rest of it. But, uh, like, and I really do enjoy all of that as well. I really like doing emergency stuff. Um, and I think that definitely has its value in place in remote communities. However, when I'm connecting with the community, it's, you can see just the mutual benefit of that. But it, it just takes a long time to stick around. I think it is a bit of a vision and goal of mine to eventually commit to one community and keep returning to that one place yeah, yeah. and have that kind of level of rapport. And then seeing, you know, as with primary healthcare, it, it all takes time, you know, seeing the results yeah. over time, Absolutely. Um, I think is incredibly rewarding. Yes, yeah, yeah I think so. So what would be your top three tips if someone's thinking that they might want to get out and maybe not run naked of a night in the remote desert? But um... Oh, come on. You, you can be honest <laughs> with me, Danielle. You okay, can tell me the truth. We might have all done it once before, but <laughs> I'm glad you did it at night time so you didn't get sunburned. <laughs> but, um, you know, what would be your top three tips? Um, number one tip is be like a child. Um, okay. And what I mean by that is go in there to learn more than you going in there to teach. Yep. And I think for me being like a child means showing genuine interest and curiosity in the local culture and the language group. Um, I take a notepad with me and literally take notes about people's language and culture. And I'll ask them in my consults, I'll try and learn a new word from each person okay. and I'll write it down. And the, the rapport that that builds is 
is quite profound, especially as you show them. You, it's not that I'm showing, but I'm opening that book and they can see that I'm writing down new words. Yep. Um, so uh, I think the way I think about that is that for most of history, Indigenous people have encountered uh, European people uh, in a way that's kind of like the teacher or the dominator, perhaps. I don't really know a right word for it, but when you enter as a child, I think it has the potential, it, it puts the indigenous people in a position of teacher. Mm -hmm. And so in the process of me being a child and them being the teacher, as time goes on, we can become friends. Um, and there's an exchange of knowledge that occurs in that space. However, if I enter as a teacher and essentially I'm just reinforcing what history has always said to Indigenous people, and that's that your children that need to be told what to do. Yeah. yeah. And I just don't agree with that. So it's, it, it's a very tricky one because, you know, a lot of what we do as nurses in remote communities is about um, primary health care which requires education. Yep. However, I think when I've been most effective when I'm showing genuine interest and, and learning about language and culture myself. So that would be my number yeah, one tip. tip. Yep. Um, and that tip, by the way, is not my own. I can't take credit for that. I think it's important that I acknowledge Richard Trudgeon who wrote um, Why Warriors Lie Down and Die. He's the person that um, brought that to my attention okay. and that's a fantastic book which I highly recommend anyone read before doing any remote work and you can actually do courses that will prepare you to go remote um, from a cultural perspective and I would recommend doing them yeah okay yep yep I'll try and um, put a link in the in the yeah. uh, notes to that book yeah cool yeah please do I, I did his courses before going remote as well along with doing my postgraduate studies in remote healthcare and and both of those things were very helpful for me yeah. before I went remote um everyone on this podcast says go for it and I'm no different I'm totally agreeing with that take the plunge have a look and stop making excuses is number two yep <laughs> and then number three is uh go to a big clinic um for your first placements there's just more support there so like a big clinic would be anywhere, like pretty much at least four remote area nurses, if not five or more. Yeah, okay. I, I think that's a very good idea. Just to have that support network around you as you're exactly. branching as you're out. Transitioning into a very different work environment. It's incredibly important to have colleagues that you can debrief with and talk about what you're getting exposed to because it is incredibly different to the city yeah 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 cool they're very cool tips tell me do you still have your book that you write all your notes in about the the language and the words to learn yeah i do and i i love being able to look back at the different locations that i've been to and in my mind it's i'm going to different countries yeah. Um, and I, I honestly see Australia through the lens of the Indigenous map now. And 
every country is different. It's it's like comparing uh, Germany to Portugal to Netherlands, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And have you have you found any? I'm a bit curious now. Have you found any similarities, or is there like stark contrast in the language? I think it's um, the. I would probably err on the side of stark contrast, to be honest. Yeah. I think um, there are, like, for example, Yongu people in Northeast Arnhem Land have um, a language, you know, Yongu Mata, and that connects multiple countries of that region. However, each country from that part of Australia um, uh, have several languages within that country so elko island my understanding is that that island has 13 different language groups however they all speak to each other through yongu mata yeah okay yeah, yeah and, wow so there's and, one common yeah. tongue and then that's right and then um a, a, a good example that i think of is um in the desert there's um or anywhere in Australia, but for some reason my mind just goes to the desert. It's it's kind of like imagining, um, like I was saying earlier, um, Germany and Netherlands next to each other, which are kind of similar. There's some similarities in that language groups. However, then you put China next to those two countries and that's the kind of contrast that you get. There's yeah. some similarities, but then the, the next neighboring country is completely different. Yeah. So, yeah. That's that's been my observation and experience, and that's links in with what I've read from different anthropologists. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Fascinating. Listen, I'm going to be greedy and oh, okay. add three more tips. <laughs> all <laughs> right, feel, all um, right. The floor's yours if you yeah, yep, no, take I'm it away. Really taking like, <laughs> kind of preacher role for a moment and just. <laughs> You can um, humor me for a bit. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I think it's incredibly important for me in my experience working remote um, to become clear on my purpose and my intention for going remote in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, some people potentially eye roll a little bit at this um, this suggestion, but for me, it has been incredibly important to break it down my purpose into one sentence yeah um and the reason being is you know like i mentioned earlier with that very intense story on sci-fi um if i ever get lost in the pain and confusion of it all or i get overwhelmed with that kind of imposter syndrome i remind myself of that greater reason and the sentence that i've broken it down to is to to provide people living in remote areas with gold standard healthcare. Yep. And um, what I mean by that is based off my hospital based experience, I want to essentially deliver that type of healthcare in a remote context, even yep. without all of the resources the hospital has to offer. You know, and at least attempt it. You know, I understand that we can't realistically deliver the same hospital service but at least we can attempt it um, it's that equitable access i guess yeah yeah exactly 
And yeah. I think the other thing I want to add in there with that point is that if I just left it there, I, I potentially just sound like a run the risk of sounding like a narcissistic saint. And <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important that I, I just want to acknowledge that we actually get paid very well in remote yeah. nursing. And I think that that's something that I want to be honest about. Yep. I think initially when I started nursing, I had a lot of strong ideals about working in international developing world contexts. And I did do some of that um, through my student years and early on. But as time has gone on, I've done a bit more remote work in Indigenous Australia. It's become increasingly um, obvious to me how those overseas contexts do have a lot of similarities with Indigenous Australia. Yeah. So for me, I essentially just get the added benefit and bonus of working in those challenging environments, but also getting paid well for it, for the hard work we do. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's important to be transparent about that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think, I think added in there with that point is that we find our meaning from finding problems and coming together to solve them. Um, and I think that that's what brings purpose and community in our lives. And in my experience, that's what makes remote nursing so satisfying. Yeah. Is that often I'm surrounded by like-minded people and we're there for a similar goal and purpose and it fosters a very solid working team. Yeah, yeah. A really special and unique experience. It's hard to articulate that for someone that hasn't experienced it. Yeah, and I think, I think that's exactly right that... Um, we need to remember why it's, it's your why. When you're talking about your purpose, people may have heard um, others say, you know, find your why. Um, and that's really, you know, that's why we joined nursing, but to go rural and remote, and we're not, you know, what is it, mercenary, missionary and misfits. Um, well, we're not out I, to I'm solve the world. Totally yeah, happy I think to I fall into one. the misfit too. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's more like you're not out to fix it but you, yeah. to support them yes. in remote communities to help them with their own health. Yes, you know? and I think yeah. that's, that's the goal, isn't it, of any mm. health system, ideally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To support people to make healthy choices for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, the second point, as listeners may continue to eye roll, I don't care, I'm just going to keep adding... <laughs> Hit um, me with it. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to feel like I'm really harking back to my um, my preacher days. Um, is the, yeah, the, the, or oh, this is my fifth point now. My fifth point is um, <laughs> know, know your values or at least be willing to go on the journey of discovering what you value. And I yep. think um, for me, life is most satisfying when I'm living in harmony with my values. And if, if a person can identify four core values, then I believe that puts you in good stead for working remote or any, in any context. Mm -hmm. And particularly working in cross-cultural environments, it's, it poses a lot of unexpected challenges. It's more likely that your worldview and value system is going to be challenged in some way in that context. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and just appreciating that when we do find ourselves in potentially compromising situations that we don't disrespect ourselves because that's the most like we need to ultimately respect ourselves we are number one in that that kind of dynamic of respect and so 
yeah, for me, I didn't have that kind of level of clarity until just the last six months, to be honest, and I've reflected quite a lot about it. And for me, the four values that I hold are courage, compassion, fun, and depth. And I feel that if I'm ever lost in life, that I remind myself of those values and it, it honestly helps me so much guide me in the bigger and smaller decisions that I'm making. So you said courage, compassion, fun, and depth. Yeah. What do you mean by depth? Depth is um, a willingness to listen. Like, uh, you know, something I really value is um, people that are willing to have deep conversations about all kinds of weird and wonderful things, you know, the ability to, and I think that that really is at the core of that, the ability to listen and to have like active listening skills and empathic listening ability. And I find when I'm in remote contexts, like I mentioned in my first point was um, to be like a child. When yeah. I'm like that, when I'm in that zone of being curious and interested, people will, like indigenous people in my experience are deeply spiritual people and they really love once you build rapport to talk about their stories about the land and their culture and I think for me that's that's a sign of depth that someone's capable of having conversation on that level yeah yeah okay yeah and yeah. what's number six all right number six <laughs> I hope I'm winning the title for the most. Greedy. I think you are. I think um, <laughs> I I challenged it and I had four for myself, and you've just gone above and beyond, and you've gone to six. So, yeah. all right. <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll bring it home. Yeah, this yeah. One, um, this one's probably not that exciting, but it, oh. it's just something that I found kind of practical and helpful, and that was um, the benefit of signing up to a guided meditation app. Okay. And for me, that was um, Sam Harris. He's a neuroscientist and an atheist. And I find him particularly insightful and fascinating. And the reason I mentioned that he's an atheist is because I really enjoy his exploration of, of one's mind outside of the trappings of dogmatic religion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that appeals to me, particularly given my background and not really resonating with, with that anymore. Yeah. So having having essentially like a replacement spiritual practice for myself where I can meditate, you know, because I spent so much time from the age of 13 to 26 when I was a Christian praying, um, I felt like this sense of almost loss when I broke out of that um, belief system. And, you know, I identify now as agnostic, but this app has helped me find some kind of spiritual practice that isn't based on any religion. Yeah, okay. And it's, um, I think it's essentially this equivalent as prayer in many ways. It's just, for me, it's about finding that quiet spot in nature and sitting and listening to this guided meditation app. And I, I guess that would be my final tip is just find your meditation practice, whatever that is. It doesn't necessarily have to take form in the same app or anything. But if that does interest you, then the name of the app is called Waking Up waking up okay yeah and this is just a shameless plug for it you know like I'm, i don't have any, i don't have any shares in it or anything yeah me either that's all right we'll, uh, we'll give <laughs> i'm sure he'll be very happy to hear that i'm <laughs> giving him free um advertising but yeah anyway that's it that was, but if you yeah. so for someone who um and 
for, for some people it is meditation is an eye roll moment that mm, yeah sure you know yeah. um if you're new to meditation or you haven't done that before is that is that app something that um would benefit someone who's new or yes, absolutely you know what what would be a, an easy transition for someone who's not tried meditation before this app absolutely and the, okay. the, the reason being is because he has no interest in converting you to any particular belief system it's it's genuinely presented as um like the way i think about it is wow isn't it amazing that one we exist and two hey do you want to come on this journey with me and just explore our minds together it's kind of how it's posed and it's honestly such a deep source of um, relief for me just sitting and looking into my mind and just being fascinated and curious by the different thoughts and emotions that come up and yeah. not becoming attached to them or rushing off in my mind with my to-do list or reminiscing on the past and getting upset about things from the past. You know, I know it sounds cliche, but it, it, I honestly think there's so much benefit to it. And I think it is a definite skill. Like it's yeah, not something that is. you can do quite easily just to... Yeah. Um, you know, quiet, quiet, silence your mind, or you know, take that white noise out. Um, like even well, thinking about the time when like, you go to when you yeah, go to bed yeah. and you go to go to sleep. You know, like yeah. you lay there thinking, oh, I've got to do this and that and that and that, and I haven't done this, and oh, I should have said, yeah. So yeah. for me, and I've yeah. not done a lot of meditation, but for me, um, the challenge is to quieten that. Well, I guess the my understanding of meditation is that the goal is not necessarily to quieten that. It's more okay. just to kind of observe it. And and there's something interesting that happens when we become curious about observing those racing thoughts, for example, or the emotions we're feeling. Yeah. And for me, at least in my experience of it, is that it drops me into my body and I become aware of different bodily sensations. I'm like, oh, wow, I've never really noticed that I feel this Yep. When I'm thinking that, for example, yeah, like okay. I feel constriction in my gut, for example, or if I'm feeling like positive emotions, like gratitude or love, I notice expansion in my chest. Like yeah. for me, it, it does come down to that. It's like contraction or expansion. And when I introduce awareness and observation and curiosity into the mix, whatever contract, contracted state that I might be in, whether I'm aware of it or not, it typically extends into a more of an expansive state where I feel lighter and just more open. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, nice. Nice. So what was the app again? Tell me again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, waking up. Waking up. All right. I'll have to uh, <laughs> have to have to Google it and have a try. Yeah. Yeah. He's written a great book called um, Spirituality Without Religion as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, I might anyway. have to have a look for that too. Yeah, check him out. <laughs> look, I've really enjoyed um, chatting with you, and I reckon we could we could yarn about all sorts of stuff. But um, thank mm. you for your time. I really appreciate you coming on board and sharing your story. My pleasure. Thank you for showing such an interest. It's a great <laughs> thing to share some of these crazy, wonderful experiences that I've had. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, it's inspired a few others to make a few crazy decisions and. Do some Take wild the things themselves. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Sounds I'll good. chat to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Daniel. If 
this has sparked your interest and you'd like some more information about this episode or perhaps how to take the leap and explore rural and remote nursing, you can contact me and check out my website, anurseoutwear.com.au or follow me on Facebook and Instagram by searching for A Nurse Outwear. Remember, like, subscribe and share them with your friends.